Exciting stuff, everybody. Exciting stuff. I could not believe it. Ten, ten guests last week. Ten. Um, so, I think it's been interesting. I, I think God is doing something. And I think part of it is um, just the spirit at work, right? And part of it is we're, we're starting to have some conversations around here about what is, it, what is it really like to experience God? Like, that's been this big theme. And, and I've been amazed how many people have really kind of gotten around that theme. Because don't we all want to experience more of God in our lives? Otherwise, there's like 20 other things you could be doing right now. Okay? Like cleaning up sticks in your yard. But you're here. You're here. I think you're here because we all know that we want to kind of connect with the divine in some way. There, there's something more in this world that we would like to connect with. And so the question is, how do we do that? Now, so we've been talking about this thematically this year. And, and uh, though I've been using a lot of scripture... My sermons have been a lot more thematic. They've been a lot more like topic, talking about a topic. And I've been using a lot of scripture. And there's been a lot of scripture behind what else I've been saying, even if I haven't been pointing to the scripture. But, but it is a little different than to, uh, to go back to the text. And, and so in the next couple weeks, as we head to Easter, we're going to be looking at some texts that lead us towards the cross and lead us towards the resurrection and so we're going to be digging into some Bible passages in a different way. Now, just as a way of intro, I think we all know that we're supposed to read the Bible and experience God somehow, right? Like, we're supposed to have, there's something spiritual about reading the Bible. I think we all know we should do it. But how many of you have tried it? How hard was it? Okay. You ever had the experience that you, you're like, well, I'm going to read it today. Today I'm going to read it. And then you open to Leviticus, and you're like, what is going on here? There is nothing holy about what I'm reading. You can't quite get it. I think we all know we should connect with God in Scripture. And yet, for a lot of us, it's hard to do that. It's hard to do that. Because it's a different language, and it's a different culture. It's a different way of thinking. And so there's a lot of work you have to do to understand what they were writing in such different ways, in such a different culture. And one of the things I've tried to model in so much of my preaching and teaching is, if you go deep into it, actually it has a lot to say. And there's a lot you can experience in it. But, but you've got to do some work. And so today we're going to do some work on a passage. I'm turning to Mark 14. You may want to follow along. So there's Bibles in your pews. Uh, a lot of you have phones. You can look it up. You may want to follow along. We're in Mark 14. Um, this is early in Holy Week. And we're going to peer into this one story that uh, I think is really pretty fascinating. Mark 14, and I'm starting in verse 1. It was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people... And while he was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. Then she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always, have, you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. 
She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for my burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, let's start at the end of the passage. Jesus makes this wild claim about this woman's story that it would be remembered. It's really interesting because he's about to have communion. Okay? If you follow Mark, like communion's like on the next page in your Bible. Okay? And so he's going he's gonna to break bread and he's going to say, do this in remembrance of me. But before he does this in remembrance of me, he says something about, do this in remembrance of her. He presents her as someone to be remembered. Have we done a good job of remembering her, church? We haven't really talked about her story. And why was it so valuable that Jesus says, hey, remember her. Remember her. What was so valuable about what she did? So, so, so we already know this is an important story for Jesus. Let's figure out why. Now we also can see how Mark has written the story. A lot of times when people read this, they will read verses 3 through 9. And they'll miss the two parts at the beginning and the end. But it's basically a sandwich. Mark loves to do this, by the way. The Gospels do this, but Mark does this a lot. Where he'll sandwich a story in between two things. So if you want to understand this story, you've got to understand the sandwich. You've got to get the bread before you get the meat. Okay? And what's the bread for this sandwich? Well, it's that the chief priests and scribes are seeking to kill Jesus. But they don't want to cause an uproar during Passover. Okay? They, don't, they don't want to cause an uproar. So they're trying to figure out a sneaky way to do it. And then at the end of the story, we get the sneaky way that they're going to do it, which is one of Jesus' own is going to betray him. Judas is going to take money, and they're excited because if Judas betrays him, they can do it somewhere quiet where there won't be a crowd and it won't be a problem. And then in the middle of this sandwich, Mark puts this story. It happens in the town of Bethany. Bethany is a town on the other side of the Mount of Olives where Jesus often stayed. Um, he, he had really close friends there, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus, he had just raised from the dead. He's pretty popular over in Bethany. Okay? But he's not at their house. He's at the house of someone called Simon the leper. Now, we don't know much about Simon the leper, but it is an interesting name, isn't it? Okay? Why is he called the leper? I wonder, so does he still have leprosy? I mean, is he actually still Simon the leper? Did Jesus heal him? And now they call him Simon the leper, just like a nickname. You know what I mean? Like, hey, Simon the leper. Wink, wink. Like, he's not the leper anymore. But for whatever reason, they're hanging out at Simon the leper's house. They're, they're sitting around a table. They're actually reclining. In those days, you really didn't use chairs. You used a table that was low to the ground. So you would sit on the floor. And then you could have cushions where you could sort of recline and eat. Actually, sounds great. We should put it in my house. Okay. <laughs> In walks, in this story, an unnamed woman. She is the only woman in the story, by the way. Everybody else listed is a man. Her name is not given in Mark's gospel. She breaks open an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly. That's how Mark described it. 
So we got to break this down. Alabaster is like a stone jar, which means it's a very expensive, very pretty, probably sort of round with a flask sort of top on it. So, so even the, the jar was expensive. Okay. Um, the nard is an oil of a spike nard plant. Um, th- this oil probably came from India. Okay. There, there's not really these kind of plants in Israel. So we're talking about oil that started out in these days in India and was transported all the way here. And it's pure nard. It's not mixed. Okay. You had to pay extra for the pure because they could put all kinds of other oils in there to sort of spread it out. But this, this is pure nard. It probably uh, was, the text says very uh, expensive. One of the disciples says it could be 300 denarii. Well, denarii was a day's wage for the average worker. So this was nearly an annual salary of oil. Okay, this is a lot of, this is a very expensive oil. And it was used in two ways. One, it was often put on your head and on your hair, like a perfume. They didn't take baths every day, and there aren't showers. And where do they live? Israel. They live in the desert, okay? Which means your hair gets really dry. It means your skin gets really cracked. And so oil is a very important part of everyday life over there. So this was an expensive perfume that you could put over your hair. You could put over your head. Um, It was also an important burial spice. Now, the way they would bury someone is uh, they would have these sort of caves and they would lay the body out for a year to decompose. I mean, out in the cave. And then once a year had passed, they would come back and gather the bones and put it in a small box that then they could put into a smaller niche in the, in the, in the grave. Okay? Which means it did smell real good, everybody. Right? Like you left the body out for a year. You didn't want animals trying to get in there, and then you had to go in there. If somebody else died, you had to go work in the same space. So it was really important that you put a really strong oils and ointments on the body so that you could control that. So nard was a very expensive way to do that. Mark tells us that this is almost an annual salary's worth of oil. And what he said is she breaks the flask. It's important detail. When you read scripture, you want to know, follow, trust the story, follow the details. She breaks the flask. That means she doesn't just uncork it. She breaks the thin part at the top. In other words, she has no interest in saving, no intention of saving any of it. She's going to pour out the whole thing that she does over the head of Jesus. The symbolism here is stunning. Remember that Jesus is the Messiah, and the word Messiah literally means what? Anointed one. Okay, literally, Jesus is the anointed one, the promised one. The the oil was a symbol of God's presence. So it was poured over the priests. It was poured over kings when they were anointed. And so for her to pour it over Jesus is to acknowledge, yes, you are the Messiah. But remember, it's also a burial spice. A burial spice. So not only does this woman, who's unnamed, recognize who Jesus is, But she also seems to recognize, at least from Jesus' perspective, what he's there to do. She is being anointed for burial. Now, we are not told at first what Jesus thinks of this. Our first glimpse is that of the people in the room. And what was their opinion? 
What a waste. What a waste. That's terrible. This could have fed the poor. They scolded her, the text says. The word is actually a metaphor. It's to snort in anger. You ever heard somebody so angry they snort? That's what they did. They were so angry they snorted. They were huffing and puffing at this wasteful act. And let me read again then Jesus' response. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has been done will be told in memory of her. What does Jesus say? She's done a beautiful thing. That word beautiful can mean like, uh, like pretty, like aesthetically pretty. And that word can also mean beautiful as in like when something is so good and morally right, it's beautiful. You ever seen somebody show love to somebody else and you think that's beautiful? It wasn't necessarily aesthetically beautiful, but it was like so good and so right that you say, oh, that was beautiful. I think Jesus means both. I think he's saying this is a beautiful thing that she's done. She understands who he is and what he's there to do. And she says she gave what she had. She had the means to do it. She felt called to do it. And she did it. She should and will be remembered for what she has done. Of course, the funny thing about the story is all the dudes in the story that don't get it, right? I mean, there's a a serious contrast going on, particularly when you think about the sandwich of this story. Do you know who should have gotten it? The chief priests and the scribes. You know who should have understood what Jesus was doing? Judas, he's been traveling with him for three years. The disciples are at it again. They don't understand what's going on here. And yet this unnamed woman walks in and she gets it. Clearly. We are meant to follow the example of this woman and be less like the disciples, the chief priests and the scribes, and especially Judas. We're supposed to recognize who Jesus is and recognize the moment. Yes, she could have given her money away to the poor, but in that moment, Jesus is saying, Jesus is not saying that giving the poor is bad. Giving the poor is also beautiful. But in this moment, what Jesus wanted, what Jesus needed in that moment was the honor that he received Because he was about to go to the cross. She knew the moment. She knew what Jesus needed. And all these other fellas didn't get it. In fact, they're hostile to Jesus. They betray Jesus. They consider worshiping him in extravagance to be wasteful. They seem to be caught up in their own mission, their own purpose, their own sense of timing. They're a little too busy, a little too driven, a little too ambitious. Not that men are normally like that, but sometimes people can be like that. So the question is, how do we be more like the woman and less like the guys in the story? How do we see what actually Jesus is calling us to in the moment instead of how we feel about it? Well, the answer in a lot of spiritual formation literature since the early church has been an emphasis on humility. Humility. Humility doesn't mean putting yourself down. It doesn't mean pretending to be worse than you are. Right? She doesn't like come in with a bottle of oil that's not real expensive to try to pretend like she doesn't have the means. 
not false humility. What humility in the Christian sense means is uh, that I don't care as much about who, what I think and what I feel and what I'm going through because I know that I'm not God. God is God. It's submitting yourself. As John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. Or as we pray every week, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Always dangerous words, because part of what you're also praying in that is, Lord, don't let my kingdom come and don't let my will be done. Humility is the sacrificing of my kingdom for God's and my will for God's. Pride it has a sort of narrow sightedness where we can only see what we want and what we expect and what we're experiencing. To follow Jesus is to give up our own ambitions. And you can see this in this woman. How could the disciples have sat with Jesus for three years and he's been talking about dying? He's been talking about going to his grave. He has to be a little sad. He keeps pulling away to pray. Jesus has to have hinted this enough and flat out told the disciple that he's going to. And then yet they are like totally surprised by it. Like they didn't want to hear that from Jesus. You ever do this with God? God's been telling you something for a long time. You're like, I, I don't want to hear that. And yet this woman comes in and she knows. She gets it. I wonder what her, her prayer life was like. Like I wonder, I wonder how much time she spent with God that she was able to hear. I wonder what her, her posture was like when Jesus was speaking. That the disciples could miss so much and yet she understand so much. I wonder what her community was like. I mean, here we have this group of disciples that have been following Jesus. We have this group of scribes and, and priests that have been following God their whole lives and they're missing it. What about their community encouraged each other to miss it? And yet this woman has to have come out of some kind of community, some kind of family, some kind of synagogue where she was able to see what they couldn't. That's the example for us today. This woman gets it. And I use this story as, as an entry into thinking about Easter, right? Because this is early. In a couple days, Jesus is going to be betrayed in the story. Okay, this is all going to go down. Later in this chapter of Mark, they were going to have the Last Supper. This is right towards the end. And one last thought along those lines. This is not written in the Bible, but I wonder. I wonder. Okay, Jesus is this extravagant pouring out of this strong smelling oil onto his head, in his hair. Two days later, he is betrayed and goes to the cross. And I, I wonder if he took a bath between there. I don't think he did. Like, I, I doubt it. That's not how that normally works. And so I wonder if as Jesus was betrayed, as he prayed in the garden, as he was on trial, as he was beaten and mocked, if he could smell that oil. Right? I wonder if he could smell that strong oil still in his hair. As he also smelled blood, as he smelled the wood, as he smelled the nails, as he entered the tomb, was that oil still sort of lingering? Was that part of his hope, part of the strength, was the recognition of this woman as to who he was and what his mission was, even as disciples betrayed him, even as the scribes won and got him crucified, was part of the smell of the cross for Jesus, this smell and this oil. May we be faithful 
like this woman was, to know what God is calling for us, to be able to humble ourselves and listen, and then boldly to respond. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today I want to do something a little different. I felt, um, as I read this story and wrestled with this story this week, um, just I was reflecting on the, the importance of anointing oil. And so what I want to do is, during this last hymn, uh, I'm going to be down front with some oil and be available to sort of pray with people and anoint somebody with oil if they so choose. Um, there... There is nothing uh, particularly magical about oil. Okay, it's not, it's just, it's just oil. I, I bought it at a store. Okay, it, there's nothing particularly magical and inspiring about my prayers. Okay, I don't have any closer line to God than you do. But there is a whole tradition of praying for one another and God responding to our prayers. And there is a whole tradition to actually anointing somebody with oil, putting a little oil on them, as a symbol, not as some sort of magic healing power thing, but as a symbol of God's presence with them. Okay, so, so you put oil on someone's head, or I can put it on someone's hands if they want, uh, or I can not use oil and just pray for you if you want. Um, but it, it's kind of a nice symbol just to say how God is with you in the midst of whatever your pain is, or whatever your anxiety is, or whatever you're worried about. Or sometimes you, you may want me to pray for somebody else, uh, and that's okay too. So I'm going to just kind of tuck away over here with some oil if anybody wants to come up. Um, and the way this will work is I don't have a lot of time to have a long conversation here. We can do that later. But if you just tell me real quickly, you know, pain, I have this pain, praying for somebody else, real quickly what it is, I'll pray and I can anoint from there. We're going to do the final hymn. Sally is kind enough to do the benediction for us. And so um, then we'll do our closing song like we normally do. But I'm going to stay there as long as I need to to pray for who anybody wants prayed for. I just feel like inspired by this woman's anointing of Jesus. This would be a good Sunday to pray for others and to anoint with oil. Um, does that make sense to everybody? So I'm going to be available down there as we finish the service. And again, I will stay after the service if I need to to pray for whoever is needing that.